We're glad you're here today. We are beginning a new series called Eight, and it's about a chapter in the Bible that some people, some theologians, some scholars would say, greatest, greatest chapter in the whole Bible. They would say, some people would say, the greatest book in the whole Bible, theologically, is Romans, and the greatest chapter in that book is chapter eight, and that's where we're at. We are going to look at Romans chapter eight for the next few weeks, and I got to tell you, it starts off with this theme of freedom. When, when in your life have you felt the most free? I, I think maybe for me, in some sense, is when I, I was 16. It was the summer before my senior year. My dad suggested that I not work that summer. He said, you're going to be working for the rest of your life. You might as well take this last summer off before you graduate. And I had a, an old four-wheel drive scout. And uh, we were sitting around the summer. I turned to a buddy of mine. It was one of those trips that kind of happened spontaneously, but I said, we should go up to the mountains, and we jumped in. My scout took off, headed up to, to the mountains, c camped up by the Continental Divide uh, west of Buena Vista, and just had a wonderful time up there camping. Uh, we were up there shooting, climbing rocks, just having a great time uh, up near uh, uh, an old ghost town called Tin Cup, and just had a blast. Then, because we were up there several days, we went over Cottonwood Pass, and then dropped down to a high mountain reservoir called Taylor. And we were up there, and when we were there, I noticed that there was these huge mud flats at, at this Taylor Reservoir. And so then we took that scout out on the mud flats, and we went mudding. I mean, we were just doing it all, having a great time, ripping across these mud flats as, as fast as that scout would go, and uh, just, just having a blast. And then I saw that there was a, a creek that was draining into Taylor Reservoir, and that cut through the mud flats, and so you just have mud, but maybe there was like a 15-foot-wide path where this creek, it was only a few inches deep, maybe 8, 10 feet wide, and so these mud flats were cut maybe 15-foot wide and maybe 20 inches, and I thought, man, I'm going to take this scout, I'm going to get some air and just jump this, this creek, or I didn't think I'd make it all the way across, but I just, I floored it, we're just free as birds, we hit the edge, and I didn't get any air, I just went right down in the creek, and then I thought I would pop up on the, on the other side, but I didn't pop up on the other side, I plowed in to the mud, uh, and it just buried my front wheels, and I was not free any longer. And I got out, and since we had been doing donuts and stuff, I didn't have my hubs locked in. I locked in the hubs and tried to get out of there, and I couldn't go anywhere. My front tires were spinning. My back tires were, were in the creek. And although it was only this much water, it was all sand. And so when those tires spun immediately, my, my scout just went, and I was high-centered in the creek. I mean, I was stuck. Our freedom, that freedom was over. But hey, we had a good time while it lasted. We had a blast. Christianity sets us free. In Christianity, we can feel freedom like we've never felt before. And I know that sounds weird to some people because they think religion, and even some Christians would, would feel this. They say, religion doesn't set you free. Religious, religion constrains you. And, and they don't feel freedom, and again, even some Christians don't feel that way. And that's because people who, who feel that religion isn't freedom, and only Christianity is, it's because they're caught in two different traps. One is the performance trap. Because they feel, well, if I'm a Christian, 
well then I've, I've got to set this standard of behavior and I've got to set this bar pretty high. And if I'm not doing everything God wants me to do, then God's not going to bless me. And so I'm always struggling against that and, and, and making sure that I'm above the bar and I never really know because I want God to bless me. That's the performance trap. And then the other trap is the pretending trap. And that is, on the outside, we come to church and everything's good and we act like we have it all together, but we don't. And we know that we don't. It's not all together on the inside. But Christianity, in true Christianity, you avoid both of those traps. Real Christianity sets us free from both. And the question is, how? How does Christianity, real faith in Jesus, lead to freedom in your life? Well, we're going to find that out at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. Because Paul's writing, believers, they've turned to forgiveness, but they've turned to Christ. They have freedom in him. But then, like all believers, they realize, hey, I, we're struggling with sin here. And so Paul writes them a letter and he's going to tell them how to have freedom. Now, it's interesting because as he starts Romans chapter 8, in context, we remember he's already written Romans chapter 7. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul has talked about his struggle with sin in this classic uh, passage where he says, Wow, I'm struggling. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. What I want to do, I don't end up doing. And I'll just read a verse from that. Romans 7.15 says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. You see, what happens is when we become believers, our thinking changes. And we feel differently about doing things that God says is wrong. We start becoming disgusted by that. We, we don't want to do that anymore. We want to do right. And we no longer find pleasure in doing it or any lasting pleasure in doing what we know is wrong. And so we struggle. It's interesting. He says, I'm doing what I hate. There's a lot of balance in that short little phrase. I'm doing what I hate. It really keeps us, the balance keeps us from two errors. I'm doing what I hate. First error that it keeps us from is legalism. Legalism says, hey, real Christians don't sin. Real Christians have it all together. Real Christians get it right. Real Christians, uh, they don't struggle with sin anymore. But Paul's not saying that. Paul's saying, I'm doing. I'm doing it. And then the other error that this phrase keeps us from is not only legalism, it's the flip side of that, it's permissiveness. Permissiveness in Christianity says, hey, we're, as a believer, you're still a sinner and you sin just like everybody else. Okay, well that's not quite right either, let me explain, it's not exactly true. Real Christian sin, we get that. But we hate it. What I'm doing, I hate. Because we desire to follow the one who has freed us. Even though our flesh, our sin nature is still powerful enough to keep us from doing what we want all the time, we still have the desire. We don't like it. And that brings the struggle. So what's the answer to that? 
Romans 8. Romans 8, beginning in verse 1. Here's what he says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, just starting there, because there's some phrases there that will... Don't let this law of this and law of that throw you because it it can start sounding a little bit confusing. Basically, that law of the spirit or that law of sin and death, it can be confusing. Don't let the word law throw you. The NASB, the translation we're using here, it helps you with sometimes the word law is capitalized and sometimes it's not. So what we just read, first two verses, not capitalized. But in the next verse we're going to read, it is capitalized. And that helps you because the law means two different things. When it's capitalized, that's the NASB helping you saying he's talking about the law, the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, the law that Moses got, like the Ten Commandments, the set of what God says is right and wrong, the law. When it's not capitalized, that's a hint for us as we're reading it that he's not talking about Moses' law. Now he's talking about law as a principle, this principle. And so that's another way that you can look at that would mean the principle of, of Christ, of the spirit of life, the principle of sin and death. So now let's continue in verse 3. For what the law, big L, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. He does not belong to him. If Christ is in you. Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Okay, and we'll stop there. And I know some of that can sound a little confusing, but we're going to break it down. We're going to get to it. And basically what's happening here is Paul opens this chapter of Romans in Romans 8. And he says, God has set us free in three ways. And two we're going to talk about a little bit. One I'm just going to mention. But in three ways, God has set us free. First... Jesus has set us free from the penalty of sin. Jesus has set us free from the penalty of sin. He says there is no condemnation. Now, condemnation is a legal term. And when he says no condemnation, he's saying no judgment against, free from debt or penalty, no charges against. And this is probably stronger than it sounds. He's saying, hey, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer, you're not, he's not saying you, you are 
no longer condemned, you're not condemned. He's saying something stronger. For Christians, he's saying there's no condemnation. There's no penalty at all. There's no condemnation at all. God will not condemn me because Jesus has already been fully condemned for my wrongs, for my sins. So there's nothing left for me to be condemned for. If I were condemned for that as a believer, then God would be unjust. God can't be unjust because my penalty has already been paid. Jesus has already taken my personal condemnation on himself. He's taken my personal penalty on himself. And God cannot be unjust. No condemnation. No condemnation. Again, stronger than we think as, as believers. And here's why. Sometimes as believers, we, we sort of get this, but not completely. And so what will typically happen is we understand. As a believer, that means we have understand that, hey, we've sinned against God. We violated his standards. And there's, for a just universe, for a just God, and there will be perfect justice, that sin has to be paid for. There has to be a penalty for that. And because it's serious, it's separation from God. And so... We get that when we become a believer, God has taken that penalty away. There's no condemnation. We understand Jesus paid the price for all my sins. But then what happens is we then go on and we become a believer and then we start living the Christian life and then we sin again. And then we feel condemnation again. So then we feel that we have to, we have to go and we have to pray to God and ask for forgiveness for that. So that we can be forgiven for that. But that's not what scripture is saying. Because if that were true, then we're constantly sliding in and out of condemnation based on what we did last and when we last asked for forgiveness. Paul's saying something different. He's saying no condemnation forever. Ever. The moment... We place our trust in Christ and only in Christ. Our penalty, our condemnation, the debt that we owe, it's gone forever. And Paul knows what he's talking about. We know that because of chapter 7. He has been experiencing this struggle with sin. Paul, maybe the greatest Christian who ever lived. Paul, he's talking about that struggle. And we don't know exactly what Paul struggled with. We don't know what issues, because he doesn't really tell us that. He's just saying, I keep doing what I said I wouldn't do. And, and we don't, but, but we have that. What's your biggest struggle? What are you most ashamed of in your life now? Whatever that is, God knows it. God sees it. And God says that if you've placed your faith in Christ, in Jesus and him alone, that you have no condemnation for that. But the problem is we forget that whole no condemnation. We don't live that out. And when we forget that truth, first of all, we feel more guilt, uh, more shame, more unworthiness, more pain. We have a lack of joy in our lives. We have no confidence in our prayer because we far, forgot about no condemnation. The second thing that happens is 
we're less motivated to follow God. When we forget no condemnation, what are we left motivated with? Well, we're motivated by either fear of God or duty, sort of slavish duty. Yeah, I'm supposed to do this because I'm a believer. But that's, that's not how God wants us to be motivated. He's telling us, hey, that's not nearly as powerful a motivator as love and gratitude to the one who, who declares us that we cannot be condemned forever, that we're free from the penalty of sin forever. We're freed completely forever. And then we respond not out of duty, not out of fear, out of love and gratitude. It's kind of like the difference when a non-believer sins and a believer sins. I mean, they're both breaking God's law. When a non-believer sins, it's sort of like he's breaking the law of the land. And so he breaks the law of the land, and he, you know, maybe he knows he shouldn't do it, but he does it. But when a believer sins, it's different. When a believer sins, it's like we're, we're breaking something else. When a believer sins, it's like a husband do, committing an act or doing something that hurts or destroys or tears at or is destructive to the relationship that he has with his wife. You see, both of them are wrong, but one of them is, is a sin against love. I would much rather break some law of the land than I would break uh, do something that would work to uh, hurt my relationship with my wife. You see, that's the difference for a believer. We're in relationship. And so sin is a little different. It, in both cases, it's wrong. But in one case, you've sinned against love. But you see, because God has freed us from the penalty of sin. Jesus has done that for us. Secondly, the Holy Spirit has freed us from the power of sin. And, and this is key because we still sin. And, and what's the answer? Well, Jesus frees us from the guilt, the penalty of sin. But it's the Spirit that frees us from the bondage to sin in this life. And, and when you talk about the Spirit, according to the Spirit or the Spirit inside of us, for those of you who are new to Christianity, new to church, God exists in Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God forever in three persons. And the Spirit, when we become a believer, comes into our life. Sometimes, as a pastor over the years, every once in a while, somebody will come up to me and they'll say, Hey, pastor, hey, I enjoyed your teaching, but I have a question. Have you received the Spirit? And when somebody asks me that, I know that they're from, typically they're not from our church. They're from somewhere, another belief system and, and a tradition that basically says when we become believers, we get Jesus, but we don't really get the Spirit until sometimes later. Not every believer has the Spirit. That is completely wrong according to the Bible. The Bible says every single person who comes to Christ, every believer has the Spirit. Because Paul said in verse 9, the last half, I don't know if you caught it, 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And this Spirit's the same word. It's the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, then you're not a believer, is what he's saying. Well, how does the Spirit free us from the power of sin? How are we freed from that? The power of sin in our life. Well, before we get to that, I think we need to, to define a couple things. Because sometimes people confuse autonomy with freedom. Autonomy is an English word that we get from two Latin words. That means auto, which is me, myself. And nami, which is talking about the law. So autonomy means self-law. The law of me. Autonomy says... I'm a law unto myself, and I can do whatever I want. I just live for me, and I do whatever. That's autonomy. Freedom is a little bit different. Freedom is how we live the way we're designed to live, and we flourish and thrive. And I'll give you an example of that. When I was, when I was 11 years old, I lived in southern New Mexico, a dry place, nothing like Ohio this year. And I was living there... And when I was 11, my, my dad bought an old boat. It was already an old boat. It was an old aluminum boat. It was funny because we drove to the middle of the desert and found this boat. It's covered with dust, and we, we bought that thing. Now my son owns that boat, and it's sitting in my backyard. <laughs> it's been sitting in my backyard for like 10 years. He, he's had it out a few times, but here's a weird question. Weird question. When is a boat free to be a boat? When's a boat free to be a boat? Well, yeah, some of you are saying that. When it's in the water, right? When it's in the water. Why? Because that's what it was designed for. And you could say this, you know, when's a train free to be a train? When it's on the... When's a fish free to be a... You, you get it, Right? When is a human free to be a human? When we do what our Creator has designed us to do. When we live out what we were created for. You see, only the designer can answer what freedom really is. And that's what God is doing for us. The Spirit inside of us if you're a believer, and all believers have the Spirit, the Spirit empowers us to obey the law. The Spirit actually enables us to obey the law. Now, I'm not saying perfect obedience. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. I'm not saying that a true believers don't sin anymore. I'm saying we have a Spirit enablement to keep from sinning at any individual time. We have the possibility of doing that because of the spirit inside of us i mean why did jesus come to die well he came to die we already talked about to free us from the penalty of sin but he also came to die so that our lives would be different look at verse four he says so that talking about christ his death so that the requirement of the law big l the law of moses might be fulfilled in us jesus did that for us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit 
He's saying, even though we sin and we needed Jesus to come and do that, but now we're freed from that, not just the penalty of sin, we're freed from the power of sin, and we, as sinful believers, we can still walk according to the Spirit. We have that ability with the Spirit inside of us. And what's it mean to walk according to the Spirit? How do we do that? I mean, how do we actually get that done in our life? I have another illustration for you. It's an old movie, 1981 or something. Chariots of Fire. How many? Dun, 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 dun. Anybody? How many knows Chariots of Fire? It's, it's a great movie. If you don't, if you've never seen, it, you need to get it and watch it. Anyway, it's, and it's not a, it's not done by, it wasn't done by Christians. It's a great movie. Maybe that's why it's a great movie. I don't know, but it's, it's, it's a good movie. Chariots of Fire. And here's what it was about: the 1924 Olympics. And it's about two British runners who are training for the 24 Olympics, which is going to be in Paris. And one guy's name, this true story, one guy's name was Harold Abrahams. And he was not a believer. And the other guy was Eric Little, and he was a believer. And as this movie progresses, these guys are running. And you're, and you're seeing fleshed out before you their motivation for running. And at one point in the movie... Harold Abrahams, it's right before the Olympic race. And he's talking about some of the fears that he has about this because he's been beaten before and, and he can't stand to be beat. He wants to be the fastest man alive. And, and he's talking to his friend. He says, this race is coming up. He goes, in a few minutes, he goes, I'm going to look down this corridor. Talk about the lane that he's running. I'm going to look down this corridor and I have 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. Because that's what he lives for. Ten seconds to win. And if he doesn't win, he has not justified his entire existence. Is what he's saying. At a different place in the movie, Eric Little is talking to his sister. And he's a God follower. He's actually a missionary getting ready to go to China with his sister. And she wants him to go, but there's this pressure. People are saying, you should run in the Olympics because he's real fast. And so he's struggling with this, and here's what he tells her. He says, Jenny, I know God has created me to be a missionary to China. I know that. But God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, notice, totally different than Abraham's. Not when I win, I feel his pleasure. When I run, I feel his pleasure. And so the movie's about how he then uses his running really to, to emphasize you know, God's goodness and all that. And then, but the main run is on a Sunday and he won't run on a Sunday. It's, you, got, you just got to see the movie. But the point is, which one, which man was free? The one who's saying, well, I got 10 seconds. And out of all of us, only one of us that we're going to justify our whole reason to exist. And you have another man go, hey, I got a reason to exist. But when I run, I feel his pleasure. You want to know who won? Yeah, get the movie. Anyway, good stuff. So, which man is for, how do we overcome sin? You know, this is Eric Little. That's living life in the spirit. That's walking according to the spirit. Here's what he, here's what he said. We read it a while ago, verse 5. 
For those who are, some, some translations will insert the word living, but it's not really there. But for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But for those who are according to the spirit, not in there, but set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Paul says there is a connection between how we live and how we think. Whatever we set our minds on, it shapes our lifestyle. It shapes our character. That's what we're reminded. And so we should set our minds. How do we do this? How do we live in the Spirit? How do we walk according to the Spirit? We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, I don't mean that we're thinking about religion all the time. That's not it. I don't mean that we're thinking about theology all the time. But like Eric, here's what we're doing. Whatever we're doing, we, we are thinking that God has a plan and I have a place in that plan. That we're thinking according to the Spirit. That God's up to something and I'm living my life and I want to be conscious of how my life is interacting with God and what he's doing and how, what part he wants me to play in that. That's how we put our minds on the Spirit. And overcoming sin begins in our minds because we kind of think through our actions. We think through, well, how is this going to affect? And here's another thing. I think we measure sin the wrong way. As believers, when we struggle with sin and, you know, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm doing it, you know, or I'm tempted to do this, whatever. I think we tend to measure sin by the effects of the fallout, by the effects of sin. So, we measure sin by, well, is it, how is this going to impact people I know, impact the people around, impact me, impact those I love. And so, we measure sin by its effects. But maybe, what, what if that's... And, and because of that, by the way, secret sins, we give ourselves more of a pass on that. Because if nobody finds out, they're not affecting as many people. But maybe we have that all wrong. Maybe we should be measuring our sin by how it impacts our life in the spirit. Because we know when we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Now, he doesn't go anywhere. He's still there. But we don't feel his presence as much. When we sin, we are alienating ourselves from the spirit in our lives. And when we do that, then all of a sudden we lose our joy. We, we lose our confidence when it comes to praying. I mean, it, it changes us. It changes how we live. It changes how we are living with God. And maybe that's the way we should measure sin. Because then we're not experiencing life the way God intended us to experience it. You see, every time Jesus calls us to obey, he's calling you to freedom. Every time Jesus calls you to obey, he's dragging you to the water where you can be free. So, Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin. The Holy Spirit in our lives frees us from the power of sin in our life. 
Now, there's a third thing I'm just going to throw out. God will free us from the presence of sin in our life, and that's going to be a great day. And we talked a little bit about that's the future. And we see that actually in the next verse that I didn't read. Verse 11 says this, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And what's he saying there? We've, we talked about that actually the last couple of weeks. And that is, hey, when we die, our soul goes and, and we're with God if we're a believer. Our, our body, we just commit to the ground or whatever happens to it doesn't really matter. But there, there's a future day where that body, whatever's left of it or not left of it, is resurrected and glorified and reunited with soul. That's what he's talking about. He's saying there's a day coming when we're going to have a body that we won't struggle against. That it'll be a glorified body. We will no longer, though, struggle against the flesh, struggle against our sin nature. That will be over and that will be a glorious day for us. But the point is simply this. How do we get that freedom? How do, we, how do we receive the fact that Jesus frees us from the penalty of sin? How do we experience the fact that the Spirit frees us from the power of sin in our life? And it all starts with something that we call the gospel, which... It's just a word that means good news. And the, the news that's good is that God not only created us, but he allowed his one and only son, Jesus, to come to earth, to live in the flesh, and ultimately to die for our sins, to pay our personal penalty for sin. Because God has a righteous standard. When we violate it, it's wrong. Because God is just, wrongs have to be punished or you can't have justice. Bad news for all of us. The good news is God made a way for us to experience true freedom. Freedom like we've never experienced before. Just by turning to Christ. And the way we get it, we can't earn it. It's just through faith. It's by putting our trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. Not church, not religious rituals, baptism, good things, but that's not what saves us. Not living a good life, not trying to do the right thing. That does not save the whole Bible. It's funny, people think, oh, what's the Bible say? Oh, do good and you'll go to heaven. Now, that's exactly what the Bible says that's wrong. That none of us do good. And so I want to close this way, two things. In just a moment, I'm going to lead in a prayer. But if you're sitting here and you're not sure you have the Spirit of God in you, because you're not sure that you've put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, meaning you're good with Jesus, but, but I, I'm a believer because I go to church, or I'm a believer because I was baptized as a child, or I'm a believer because this, that, and the other thing. No, you're a believer one way to become a believer. Jesus, only Jesus, trusting in Jesus. And if you're attaching anything else to that, you're messing it up. 
And that's not true Christianity. And so for some of you, I want you to think about, do you know that you have the Spirit because you've turned to Christ and Christ alone? And for the rest of us, I want us thinking about this. Are you free from the power of sin? Are you living that out? Or have you gotten complacent and got a little messy and maybe because things are a little more private, you've given yourself a slide or you've given up or you just think, hey, we're relegated to always struggle like everyone else. Well, we sin, but we don't sin like everyone else because we hate it. And God's given us the ability in any circumstance to not sin through the strength of the Spirit in our life. And so in just a few moments, I'm going to give you, Christians, an opportunity just to, to turn that over to God, just to re-up with God that you want to follow him, that you want to, be, you want to experience freedom from the power of sin in your life, that you're admitting it, you're confessing it, and you're asking God for the strength to get over that. So those are the two things. First, let's bow our heads. Let's bow our heads and heads bowed. And, and for those of you who are not 100% sure that you have a relationship with Jesus strictly on faith that cannot be earned in any way, you cannot contribute to it in any way, it's all Jesus, it's 100% a gift. And you're ready to trust him totally like that. I just want to lead you in a prayer to express that trust. And you don't have to say it out loud, God knows God knows your every thought, God knows you, he knows your every sin, and he's waiting for you. And you can express your faith something like this. And I would invite you just to pray along silently in your own words, express these thoughts to God. Father in heaven, I understand that I have sinned against you, that I violated your commands. and that I should pay a penalty for that. But I've also under, I also understand that, that Jesus came and died for me to pay my penalty so that I wouldn't have to. That you love me that much. And God, I thank you for that and right now I'm putting my trust in Jesus alone, not my good life, not my trying to be a good spouse or a good neighbor, nothing like that. Not me doing the church thing, even though that's good. It's just Jesus. I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation, and I realize it's a total gift. And God, I'm inviting you to come into my life and help me live in a way that I could feel your pleasure. Help me to follow you. In Christ's name. In Christ's name.